Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, chronoskimming, classics, interviews, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me chronoskimming around the internet at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And there's nobody better to kick off this episode with than my amazing co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA, where I am jumping through stepping discs all over limbo, trying to figure out what's going on and excited for it. Okay, well, if we're going through the stepping discs of limbo, I'm dodging shit because... It is a scary time to be Limboian. It is an incredible thing that Vita Ayala and Rod Race's New Mutants has been this in- just stunning revelation of healing, of challenging expectations and norms, and of transformation in these characters' lives. I've been really excited to see it. And I know, you know, New Mutants was one of the first things we bonded over, and it's like hitting all your core favorites. Absolutely. I'm like, that OG New Mutant team? Hell yeah, sign me up. I'm like, ooh, Chamber shows up sometimes, you know. You know, like, Mondo a little bit in the early run. When Vita, they started and they did that Otherworld epic, I was like, holy shit, they're touching on Otherworld? This is amazing. Like, holy hell. And now, Maddie Pryor taking over Limbo for Yana and allowing Yana to hopefully, potentially move on and heal from that trauma is such an amazing epic journey that I am here for every second of it. And it's amazing that this epic journey is one that so completely lives in fans minds and hearts this is so iconic for not just the new mutants but for the x-men at large the specific major event that changed everything for iliana is best told through the events of x-men magic one through four where we see iliana and her journey through limbo now when i say this is best remembered for being more than just a new mutant story this is contained in the X-Men Volume 3 Omnibus. It's in the New Mutants Volume 1 Omnibus. This isn't something that's just relegated to dollar bins. You know, when we talk about that four-issue miniseries, Cat and, you know, Sorceress Storm, these characters live on in our memories forever. I love how they've brought this back. I haven't seen this story directly referenced in X-Men Black Sun in its own weird way. So, like, just to get more of this limbo lore and to really revisit these pivotal characters in development of Ileana Lake. I mean, she was alone in hell for seven years, but she had Storm with her who taught her magic. We, she had Cat with her who taught her how to fight. And the combination of those two really caused her to pick the Soul Sword as her symbol of breaking free from Belasco. You know, I love that you talk about the Soul Sword as a symbol of her breaking free. You know, I'm lucky enough to have edited the coverage of New Mutant that's going to follow, along with the coverage of a number of other amazing X titles that have come out in the last few weeks. I am really fascinated by the number of ways people have read the Soul Sword. Now, I've always seen the Soul Sword as an extension of who Ileana is, and admittedly, this is one of those things where, you know, you start talking about, like, personal fandom, and it's sort of your thing, or it's not, but, like, for me, the Phoenix is an extension of Jean Grey, even when other people have it. For 
me, the soul sword is an extension of Ileana, even if somebody else has a soul, something else. For me, the demon bear is an extension of Danny. You know, there are certain entities that I just feel are so synonymous with that character. And for me, the soul sword really is a powerful, super important defining artifact of the X-Men universe. Ileana tried for several times to create the acorn that Storm made. She couldn't get that to work because that wasn't the piece for her. Thankfully, there's some other soul sword stuff that can stay forgotten, like, you know, like the soul eye that happened in Excalibur. It's really funny that you would say that you would rather see the Excalibur stuff forgotten. Funny enough, I kind of dig it. And I think I dig it because of how much it explored the winding way. And I love that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm very take the good with the bad. And, you know, some of it is very in that 90s edge pain kink and like not for me. But there's certainly a lot of discussion about the bits of Soul Sword lore. I'd love to know who do you think is our mysterious cloaked figure? So obviously we're meant to think it's Belasco, right? I think that would be too easy, too much of a red herring. But to me, I think Limbo has such a tie with the winding way. I would love for it to be Margali Zardos. You know, there's other people that I do wonder about. We have a lot of, I would say, incomplete pieces of exactly how Ileana came back and... I wonder if we've seen all the parts of Ileana or if maybe there's still some other vestige of who she is. Ooh, that is a good idea too. It could be because we can't forget that we don't know what happened to the dark child that came out of Rosenberg's Uncanny. She could still be in limbo just fucking shit up. And let's not forget, we did see a large amount of magic and a large amount of sort of limbo demon energy over in the pages of Empire X-Men, which Vita was a contributor to. So we know that Vita is capable of handling this larger than life mysticism for magic. Of course, magic's not the only larger than life lady mystic running around the pages of New Mutants. And I fall firmly on the side of I don't trust Madeline Pryor one fucking bit. I want to trust her. I want to think the best for Maddie. I want to think that she's going to, you know, benevolently take over Limbo. But we already have the reveal from Free Comic Book Day Spider-Man. I want her to not be good. I don't want her to be a hero. I want her to be on the path of redemption and be her delightfully unhinged self. But, you know, like maybe more middle ground. But I I just, I don't trust it. You're right. I don't. At the end of the day, she has a vendetta. She has made it clear that even on her best day, she's going to enjoy some amount of sadistic torture. And I'm not saying that that is not wrought by the actions of the X-Men. But it's very difficult for me to wholly accept her actions here as altruistic and contrast them with the events of Free Comic Book Day, which is written by someone who is exceptionally known for his Madeline, his Madeline Pryor with, you know, Zeb Wells at the helm. So I find myself wondering how much shipping played a factor. You know, Free Comic Book Day, Eternals coming out like right between issues, either 10 and 11 or 11 and 12, felt really unnatural. It obviously should have come after 12. And here, I think perhaps the same thing. Maybe the Madeline reveal was meant to come after some arc that handles what's going on here in New Mutants and with the paper shortage and, you know, traffic to limbo being what it is. It just didn't make its way here on time. But I'm a Gene Stan who thinks that Madeline got a raw deal. I am also an X-Men Stan who thinks that the X-Men have a habit of forgiving traitors who then instantly betray them. (sighs) 
the retcon, which maybe made her more interesting and more dynamic of a character. She did some pretty horrific shit that's really hard to forgive. Like, she tried to kill her baby, and I get the reason for it. Like, she was designed to have been bred to have that baby. So, like, in a way of trying to free herself, maybe that's why she tried to kill Cable. But I want to see Vita pick up on this redemption arc that they've done for so many other characters. Even the last arc with the Shadow King. It bears repeating that because of her design being a form of incidental problematic storytelling, she's simply a passenger in a bigger picture and then her falling into sort of a sort of rape and revenge trope. I think we see with Madeline Pryor an example of a character who is an actual victim of the haphazard way other characters get thrown around for Scott and Jean. A lot of characters get that, oh, well, they got that treatment. But, you know, I don't really think Psylocke ever really got manhandled for Scott and Jean. She's played a role in their greater story at times, but she's never really been tossed aside to spotlight Scott and Jean that way. And Madeline actually is one of those few examples. Every time she's given a chance to be better than, she just won't. <laughs> and that's the frustration. Ileana has had so many chances to slide back into darkness and doesn't. Right. And Maddie seems to refuse to take the hand and stop sliding. There's been even very few alternate realities where I've seen Maddie take that upper hand. Like, I think the last one I can remember is X-Men The End, where Maddie, like, transcended everything that happened. Now, if there's a writer that that I trust to tell a compelling story of this character trying to get redemption, it's Vita. They've done amazing things in my mind to reform the character of Rain in a way that I can move past those really bad storytelling arcs that happened to Rain in the 2000s. It's certainly going to be interesting following this cast of New Mutants into this very limbo-heavy story. And I think more than anything, my greatest hope for the New Mutants at large is they manage to come through this not just better for it but with just maybe a few less scars than the last few arcs yes there has been so much healing and so much growth but it hasn't been like nothing but good times like therapy it's very painful and there are new scars to be formed so I just want to see these amazing heroes form new memories without so much pain the one thing that I'm really hoping that we're going to get out of this, and I know we are, is just a really, really good complex story where nobody is really comically heroic or villainous and everybody's going to have to grow and change. And that, you know, I kind of hope that Sim finally learns his lesson and doesn't try to take over Limbo because when does that ever work for Sim? I agree. I mean, when does it ever work for anybody? No. You know, it's not that Ileana took over. Ileana filled a power gap. Yep. And in this next segment, I can't wait for the crew to share their amazing theories and their amazing thoughts with you guys about exactly where this new mutant story has been and where it's heading. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So feel free to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, a show where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and demon uprisings. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I'm Steven. You could find me over on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. Come over and find me on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Arturo Yatusabe. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. 
Graham. And I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. And we hope you survive this experience unlike Magic Soul Sword. <laughs> Most like the average population's dreams, the Soul Sword was shattered, and we don't exactly know why. And that must mean we're covering New Mutants number 25, written by Vida Ayala, with main story art by Rod Reyes, flashback art by Jan Durasema, flashback colors by Ruth Redman, and letters in production by VC's Travis Lanham. Before we get into this issue, where we last left off in New Mutants number 24, we finish up our our Shadow King arc, and I would love to know, coming off that arc, how are we feeling, and are we ready for a new story? For what feels like a long time, we got this interesting story of these really young mutants wanting to be taken seriously. We got a lot of great characterization between Annalie, Cerebellum, Waterboy, Scout, Cosmar, and now we're making way for this Ileana story, who has been playing a major role in New Mutants, but now we're getting a whole story focused on her, and I would love to know everyone's opinions, where we ended up, and are we ready for this? I am so here for it, and it's needed. This comic made me so happy. I think everybody can agree that years from now, Vida and Rod will be remembered and loved and cherished as, like, one of the greatest, you know, New Mutant runs. It's just so good. I'm happy that we're veering away from Cosmar and Annalie and, like, that whole little group. I really enjoyed that story. I enjoyed the Shadow King of it all. But for me, New Mutants is about Ileana. Danny, Karma, Wolfsbane, like specifically those four girls. And then you throw Madeline Pryor into the mix. You pick up the ball that Zeb Wells threw in the air over in Hellions and like nothing could have made me happier. This was absolutely my favorite issue of the series so far. I am absolutely ready for a Magic and Madeline storyline. I'm super into this. I liked the last arc a lot. Something you said, Jonah, that really stood out to me was that this was about young mutants looking for acceptance. It's not just the young mutants looking for acceptance. We've had other characters looking for acceptance too, and the new mutants not really being willing to give that acceptance. I like seeing them struggle with that and saying, hey, maybe we should be more accepting if we also want to be accepted. New Mutants is kind of like therapy. Like of all the X titles, these are the characters who are going to therapy and who are doing the most work to like fully realize themselves and actually become who they want to be. We have seen far more like work and growth and nuance in like each of these characters, Cosmar, Magic, you know, Wolfsbane, we've seen so much development with them in this book. A hundred percent. Therapy, I think, is the magic word with this. These are characters that they love, cherish, know, adore the history. Like you, that comes off the page. Not only that, but Vita has gone back and is really like digging into the trauma and damage that these characters have experienced along the way, whether it was the work that they did with karma and kind of bringing peace to her soul with having killed her evil brother and you know all of that even the log entry books by jimmy proudstar right like seeing like how he's working and growing so like vita's really committed to this bit and to to giving us not just like oh yeah you just have to like headcanon that that stuff's happening but like putting it on the page and i don't think there's any more damaged or traumatized character than matt 
magic, right? I mean, Liana literally was raised in hell, you know, for years. It's heavily implied that that was, you know, abuse, possibly of a sexual nature. And all of those things come to play in this story in such a beautiful way where it's, I mean, beautiful is kind of a weird word to use there, but like it's all still implied, but it's all very real abuse behavior and stuff that happens and ways that you cope and watching this and like seeing Ileana's kind of flashbacks and seeing Ileana portrayed as this like little goblin creature for me it feels like when she was you know six years old literally is this the way she was coping with you know being in hell bringing that back into the present and not making it feel I don't know tired or tropey or, or whatever it just every page of this felt so fresh and so new although it was talking about stuff that happened literally like 35 years ago in comics it gave me such classic new mutants vibes i was feeling that so hard and i was just so excited to read it i'm not usually a i need the sense of nostalgia in my books but i was eating that up oh yes absolutely the implied abuse the way the story is kind of developed it honestly feels like we're looking at iliana's life what she went through through her eyes as an abuse survivor so that almost slightly distanced or disassociated feeling that i sometimes see in the panels honestly reads like somebody who's survived abuse who's just kind of recounting what happened but trying not to be completely in that moment because they know how triggering and damaging it can be absolutely yes very much so when chris claremont created this story for iliana i don't know if everybody here read the original magic miniseries that detailed her accounts and what actually happened to her a lot of bad things really did happen to iliana wasn't just at the hands of belasco she had who we later see at the very end of this issue this evil version of kitty who not only five minutes prior to her being taken was reading her bedtime stories with her older brother she saw her older brother basically be melted i look at this story as somebody who's kind of trying to heal from their ptsd iliana is so fascinating as a character because a lot of what was you know part of her backstory into becoming magic is a source of trauma and she's constantly linked to it she's been linked to it for the past what 40 years it's a lot for somebody so young to deal with and even when she came back in the earlier new mutant runs charles would sit across from her and just not quite understand what to do with her he couldn't read her mind because she had psychic defenses it didn't seem like anybody was really willing to help her process exactly what happened and i hope that's something that we can get throughout the story even though i like iliana as the sorcerer supreme of limbo i do wonder what that means for her in terms of not only her magical abilities but her mutant abilities at the end of issue 24 we see iliana coming to madeline Pryor and striking a deal with her over something and we really were kind of left to our devices of trying to figure out what this means and now in this issue we get concrete details of iliana wanting to transfer title of ruler of limbo to madeline because she doesn't want that title anymore she doesn't want that responsibility and i would love to know everybody's thoughts on this plan personally i completely understand and accept it she put it best herself we trust her to run limbo but not who to pass it on to or what to do with it to me it means this is the correct decision and it's really her taking control this is like her 
saying, fuck that. I'm putting it for sale. I'm not going to be chained to this anymore. This is not my problem. This is not going to be my responsibility any further and walking away from it. And there's just something like empowering about that. Of course, the best laid plans, you know, in the beginning of the issue, when they appear in limbo in her like bed chambers or whatever, and the demons like rummaging through her things, looking for a brush or whatever, like she's just kind of like annoyed by it. Like she's so comfortable in her place of power. And she's such a kind of like absent landlord that she feels like she has nothing to fear. Right. And all of that confidence, you know, comes crashing down when we see what happens with her soul sword, which is just a shocking moment. The art just doing leaps and bounds, just like incredible work to convey the absolute shock and loss and numbness that that overcame Ileana when that you know pivotal moment happened. The shadow versions of the X-Men that existed in limbo and that betrayed her and tortured her and you know further traumatized her. Like that's a perfect example of some of the messy and and convoluted Claremontian kind of stuff that it's easier for a lot of writers just to be like, okay, that happened and we don't have to talk about it anymore. Now Ileana's got a big honking sword. She can teleport everywhere and she loves to brawl. She's a little brawler. Like it's easier to treat her that way. And for Vita to go in and like dig up those things and like show us like the shadow kitty and you know, that's just impressive to me. You know, those are those are messy elements to to be playing with and Vita's just doing it like a master. It was kind of great that they went in and really put some some nuance into the stories. I mean, we all know that yeah, that this girl has literally been through hell and that, you know, Velasco was definitely one of her tormentors, but like there was a lot of people down there that were scheming, who were trying to do horrible things. And like it it is funny that like the little demons like rummaging for the the brush and she's like, oh, just go away. Like I don't even think it's her being too comfortable in her power. I think it's she's seen this forever. She already knows that they are all scheming, that they're all looking for a loophole, that they're all, you know, trying to find a way to needle her. But like she's she's prepped for it. Was she prepped for her soul sword to be shattered? No, but I mean almost nobody's ready for, you know, a powerful item to just be cracked into little splinters. Right. Especially since it was perceived as like uh indestructible for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was just a great opportunity to like upend the table and be like, nope, everybody's scheming and, and has a different plan for where this should all lead. And I love that Danny Moonstar, I mean, for better or worse, like it's Danny's uh position again to like, you know, say maybe what the reader's thinking. She's like, absolutely not. Like, are you crazy? Why are you giving it to Madeline Pryor? The last time she had it, you know, she took over New York and was trying to bring a nexus of, you know, to hell and mailboxes were eating people. Like, are you sure? If you guys have read the free comic book day, it was either X-Men or Spider-Man, you see Madeline Pryor in New York and there's a mailbox trying to eat somebody. I almost died laughing. Oh, it's in the Spider-Man one. And she's with Ben Riley, who's all mystical now and is apparently evil. <laughs> Danny and Rain, who have come along on this journey with Ileana. Holding hands. A little queer, but we yeah. love to see that. Just gal pals. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, just, no. you know, historians would say they're friends. <laughs> but uh, And speaking of these friends, I would love to know, how do you feel about Rain and Danny kind of being opposed to this idea? They're not so much against Ileana giving up the throne, but they don't want it to be Maddie. Their reactions are in terms of their characterization and their friendship with Ileana. This feels like they hate it, but they don't have like a great salient reason. Like they know that they trust their friend, but they're still like, she's evil. We just don't like this idea. We can't tell you why. It's just coming from a place of like love and friendship and concern. And like, they they just don't want anything bad to happen to Liana slash don't let Madeline, you know, destroy the earth. But at the same time, we just got through the whole thing with Farouk where they were like, we can't trust the the Shadow King. And then it turned out that Farouk was being held captive in his own body and they just had to take care of getting rid of the actual Shadow King. So what if this is the same exact issue? And I think that's what it is. Madeline does not need to be caged. She doesn't need to be, right. you know, held on, you know, a psych ward hold for the rest of her life because oh, she might be unstable. Oh, she might be dangerous. This is her therapy. This is her being given a chance to really realize who she is and work through a lot of her her power issues and her trauma issues i do believe that it is a great outlet for maddie i think that something like this will give her a focus and she will be able to process her grief and her trauma a lot better because she's not getting the help she needs from the x-men it's just not happening so this to me feels like the best possible solution we can have for this character i would love to know people's thoughts what do you think this hood figure is that gave sim who is a very re reoccurring demon who it doesn't mm. surprise me that he's the one leading this basically de demonic uprising but also he's the one who's also most loyal to iliana which is uh, slightly weird but i also could be a little bit wrong on that but i would love to know everyone's theories of who this figure is that gave sim this anti-demon soul club that smashed iliana's soul sword I am leaning to possibly a resurrected Belasco. Interesting. That would be cool. I would love it if it was Cameron Hodge, like on that end of his deal. Like we know that Cameron oh, Hodge is right. basically immortal and usually he's like in the mortal world and, you know, looking all sorts of freaky. But it'd be interesting to see him like, you know, covertly like infiltrating limbo and causing trouble. My theory is actually Witchfire. Because they brought her back as kind of an antagonist in Limbo recently, didn't they? Or maybe it wasn't recent. Wait, who's Witchfire? I'm not I'm not familiar. Witchfire or Anonym is Belasco's daughter. Ooh. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that would be kind of Ooh. sickening. Oh. Oh, I I like oh. I really like yes, that she was a member of Alpha Flight. She used to rule Limbo. She didn't remember it for a while, but Shaman helped her. So is she a demon? Is she a mutant? Is she a, a hybrid? Is she... So she's basically a tiefling, a human with demonic ancestry. She doesn't present demonic like, say, Kurt does. I love or... that, Jonah. She doesn't present demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's, she's human passing. And she's I... Human oh passing. my god, you can't say 
say that. Part of the reason why I loved Kurt so much is that he was one of the first mutants to ever not present as human. He is not human mm. passing. And part of that is because, you know, he's Raven's son. And the other part of that, he's also half demon. And it makes for a character that helps drive home what the X-Men has always stood for. And <laughs> not that everybody who has demonic ancestry has to look like a demon. That's absolutely not true. But it I is something- to say <laughs> that is just yes. a stereotype right there that uh, is a stereotype and it doesn't mean that she's any less demonic than kurt <laughs> right. my unlikely candidate for who i think it is because i don't Ooh. think it's this person but i it might be sorceress storm and you might be saying, but Jonah, Sorcerer Storm was the only person to actively try to help Ileana escape. And to that I say, well, Sorceress Storm has been in here for a very long time and the way that time works in Limbo does not match how it is on Earth. It is fully and conceivably possible she did turn mad and does want the power. And or by taking the power, she is releasing magic, right? Absolutely, yeah. That, that is a, that is another way that she could ultimately be helping magic escape is by overthrowing her. But that's, oh, that's a reach. Absolutely. Can we please note that Sim has a costume change from his usual... Like, he's had more costume changes in the last couple of issues that he's been featured in versus what Magic and Maddie have gone through now for decades. Just saying. I'm so happy Madeline is in her outfit. Like, that is no. such No, the, it's the under titty, baby. It's the under titty. Uh, like, nobody's titties hold iconic. up like that. I'm, it is iconic. Uh, no, no, it's but boring. Problem, it's how, how many iconic outfits does Emma have? Right, and she always uh, too, dresses too many. beautiful and sexy. Right, exactly, and she looks gorgeous. <laughs> no, hold on, no, 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 no. I, right. I want to eat up maddie in new outfits i want to see her have some goddamn demon queen realness just stomping down the pages different outfits left and right and just going fuck i think that her costume alienates a huge section of yes. of the fandom i truly yes, believe that yes it does just saying I think she should get that iconic Jean Grey moment that everyone loves to copy where Jean twirls and she's in different outfits. Do that with Maddie. <laughs> oh my god. Her, yes. It would be two outfits. <laughs> At this point, it would be two outfits. <laughs> Woo. As much as I find it hysterical, the spray adhesiveness that she must use to keep this outfit on... I think we are at a point in history with Maddie. She does deserve a new outfit that really represents who she is. It can still be sexual and it can still exude confident sexuality for this woman, but maybe something a little more modern and updated that's not her kind of just fantasy battle armor that we often see, where she's in certain MMOs and RPGs, she'd be fully armored. But right. this, is, uh, this is updated because like none of it is in tatters or rips. It's not like she's running around in her... <laughs> oh my gosh. In her... <laughs> No madness. This so is all. Cool. This is all like fresh and you tailored. Literally it's incredible. I'm sorry. I will die uh, on the hill defending you can. Madeline's underboob, and I will. And and on the next solo, I have Ileana's hot pants to defend. Oh my I will god! Nineties edge lord teenager. What the fuck? But okay. But my my other point. My other point. I totally got derailed. I'm so sorry. But my other point is, what does this mean? for the pages of Strange Academy because oh Desi's father is Sim. 
I want to know what the hell is going to happen with despair now so bad. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is so crazy. Like, this has to have some kind of effect in Strange Academy for that character. But at the same time, Strange Academy has felt like it's kind of in its own world, with the exception of Death of Doctor Strange. So I'm not sure if the events of New Mutants would really be represented in Strange Academy. But we have seen events from other places like bleed over, at least the information of that. And I mean, we're seeing more and more the the backlash of, you know, different students' parents being who they are. We've seen Tatiana and Man-Thing's child Thoth go through a whole lot of bullshit. We've seen Enchantress with the Elder Yeah, her boys! Yeah, it's like <laughs> everybody has a little bit of bleed over and a little bit of pull and sway. So, I mean, this is a very big kind of magic-based event in both spellings of the word. There's got to be some sort of repercussions, so it'd be interesting to see if it does touch Strange Academy or if it is really contained just to itself. I'm really hoping we see something. Something I would love to quickly talk about is throughout New Mutants, there's a lot of quotes from very old stories, whether it's from old Greek tales or Shakespeare, and I was kind of having a slight trouble trying to figure out what exactly this all meant and how we were trying to tie this in, and I kind of think this storybook that's kind of detailing Ileana's path that we later find out that is a book that she's been reading since she was a child, and it was like one of the few hidden things she kept from Belasco. I think the Shakespearean quotes are a fascinating tie-in to try to tell what the story's trying to say to us. You're right. It's these old quotes that would seem out of place almost anywhere else, but you know have validity to magic story. I just don't think we necessarily have gone deep enough into the storyline to be able to go, oh, okay, this is how these tie into it. I think this these are just precursors and we're going to keep seeing more and more. Because, I mean, this was supposed to be the repository of all magical knowledge as, as far as Belasco could go. So there were both beneficial and neutral and negative all in that one space. So what if some of these quotes, we find out the the people who, you know, made these works of art, usually, you know, like, uh, like William Shakespeare and whatnot, what if they did have a bit of magical power in and of themselves oh absolutely i am on pins and needles worrying about what is going to happen to iliana i want her to get a sword again i wonder if we're going to see pixie show up that could be interesting with her little soul dagger that could be interesting you just want pixie to show up and I'm not a pixie head, but like... I'm not either. I've told Bob Quinn multiple times that he's converted, he's helped convert me into a pixie head. So yes, please, please give us pixie. Pixie would be a I, cool add to this. Actually, she was one of my theories as to who else it could be. Oh, who like and I, empowered Sim? Can you imagine? Yeah, and I completely forgot about that until you just said that. I was like, she could a thousand percent be like secretly the person. And you know what? She could try be trying to help. I mean, I don't want that. I'm also, I'm really not a pixie head it just I, I try so hard but since they turned her into an actual pixie i've lost like so much of my adoration of the character oh same right like it just feels like it just feels like she's been like ruined. two on the nose two <laughs> so, on the freaking nose thank you precisely pixie could totally show up personally while i don't think she should have to prove herself to anybody i am looking for her to show danny and rain that magic is right that 
that she is the right choice for for this you know this role in limbo that's all oh my god yes i am honestly i'm here to see danny kind of like having to realize that magic is correct in her thinking as we see madeline actually move into her power and into herself i honestly think that madeline Pryor is is who's going to have the most growth on this and the shattering of the soul sword is actually a step towards freedom for magic yeah i want to see what happens to magic and i want to see who she is and who knows maybe we will get a a new costume coming out of all of this i think we may see a lot of change for her as a character and i think that's that's exciting although i hope not too much change because i love her shout out to the one new mutant who we haven't seen since like issue eight amara fuck you amara (laughs) nobody likes (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Wow. It it is kind of funny. Amara literally needs to die in Ammon and then get resurrected as the X-Men Evolution version of Amara and then she'll be alright. Kidding. Teddy Amara stands in the chat. She's fine. It's just very funny how she's not in any of these New Mutant issues when I know she wasn't there to begin with but she also had a big story there and whatever. We get more Selena to get her. You're right. You're absolutely right. I would love for her to be in it but honestly it is what it is uh, it is what it is we, we have to make new mutants who this <laughs> yeah new mutants who this <laughs> i'm just really wondering how iliana's stepping discs are going to change as effect of her link to limbo effectively being severed well and one thing about her teleportation is it's always like you have to kind of port through limbo mm-hmm. right like you mm-hmm. go through a little hell portal to get to your destination so that that would be interesting to see if that changes like completely or is she still going to be a teleporter is that like the core of her power or is she going to be a full-on you know sorceress is that going to be like the vibe um i mean it is her mutation so does it have to change who knows i guess we'll find out one thing that i am not expecting to see in any of the you know next few upcoming issues but i hope so i'm just putting it out here in the universe something that i want to see down the line is the og new mutants interacting with the og hellions give Ooh. me wolfsbane and cat's eye please give me like bring beef into the mix bring bring back bevatron for christ's sake get Jetstream and cannonball to like i don't know re- reignite some old views. where's tarot where's tarot? I, I was just gonna say yeah. my, oh my uh, shout out shout out to the genius who made this tweet of emma trying to have tarot resurrected and like but she's a precog and emma saying but she's really bad at it she should have seen that coming <laughs> I'm Nico, and you guys can find me hopping around the time stream at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me doing genetic experiments on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven. You could find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Good day. This is Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. 
And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Celine, when Hope took the fucking shot. We are here to talk about Immortal X-Men number two, All Mankind's Woes, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Wernick, color art by David Curiel, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, with design by Tom Muller. There is an incredible Mark Brooks cover, you know, and I want to start there before we go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I feel Mm -hmm. like... Mark Brooks is synonymous with big painted X-Men mural pieces and I find myself almost frustrated because I think Mark Brooks is phenomenally talented. I think he is such a beautifully brilliant artist and I also think, however, that Lucas Wernick is a beautifully brilliant artist and while I value Mark Brooks's work endlessly, I'm perhaps frustrated that this is the A cover when I would maybe love to see the art inside shine all the way through. I would have loved Wernick to do the cover as well. I also wasn't really crazy about this cover. Celine's outfit doesn't match the outfit inside and that's always been something that drives me crazy that covers do. The cover doesn't match the interiors if you know what I'm saying (laughs) ladies. (laughs) Well the the art style is one thing the outfits are another i love the throwback to necrotia when selene was giant and blue and a goddess and so i see like thematically what they're doing here yeah i mean we're in this time where we get some truly dishonest covers in terms of matching what's going on within the story so i was at least happy that this one captured four people that are actually all in the issue and kind of more or less reflecting the state of what they're dealing with i would have loved to have seen a Lucas Wernick cover for this or something that just maybe matched the just incredible detail and camp style that he gives to the immortal X-Men, which is just perfect for them right now. When I look at a cover, I think the main cover of what you get should give you a semblance and idea of what you should be expecting in the comic. Because it's the first thing that anybody's going to see before they pick up your comic is the cover. Maybe there was a different way to give us what's shown here in a way that feels connected to what we get on the inside. Because it's certainly not a strike against Mark Brooks's stunning art that has been a major tentpole of the X-Men's events for years. But rather, I do sometimes wonder about why we continue to use covers to express something different than the interiors in an age where, you know, we are moving some focus to digital comics and frankly, not even every digital comic has a cover. So it's not always necessary to have a cover piece that is so wildly different. Many of us had had assumptions, guesses, predictions about Immortal X-Men from day one. And for many of us, I feel like issue two immediately challenged that. We read issue one and it was so sinister focused. And then we come here to issue two and thank goodness for hope, but still a ton of sinister. I think she is a character that is victim of being, a, you know, she was not created by a bunch of women thinking, how can we create a progressive female character? character someone said make a baby make it look like gene give it fire there and that was of course joe casada and so he <laughs> so we have hope now and she's she's a best case scenario for what she could have been and this is certainly not kieran gillen's first hope dio you know no. he's ridden this bull more than once before and because she's a bull she's an unbridled powerhouse 
it is trying to tame such a phenomenal character. She is, you know, a Magneto level character in terms of what she offers to mutant kind. Maybe, you know, her backstory isn't as rich as Eric's, but she, I always hope for more from Hope. She is very rarely capable of giving what she deserves to give, but man, do I love what we get. What you say about Hope is dead on. Always hoping for more for Hope. Because, you know, the idea of a mutant messiah is really fraught and really complicated. The idea that, like, they pinned all of their hopes on this one baby, you know, coming back with the Phoenix Force to reignite mutant kind after the decimation was convoluted. And I have really liked that she has at times been pretty unimportant and at times been pretty fundamentally important. And and that Powers of Ten House of X split the difference and was like, okay, she's fundamentally important to this new era of mutant kind, but in this very specific way. That's why we sign off every episode with keep those mutant lights lit. Like, I mean, literally every episode signs off with keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, something stupid, and we'll see ya. So, yeah. I mean, she's a messianic figure, but she's also kind of a rock star on Krakoa right now. And I think that's such a good juxtaposition as we see the ways in which as a rock star and as a member of a team, she and the five are kind of seen by the Quiet Council as a tool to do their bidding. That this whole thing doesn't work unless they actually are doing the resurrecting and they need to be okay with the resurrections. They can't just be doing whatever Beast tells them to do and having Hope step up to the council, taking on a larger role makes sense, not just in this messianic slash rock star figure role, but then also looking at her as a summer's child. You know, of course, she would be predisposed to leadership and having been raised by Cable, she would be in a good position to make tough calls and do the work. It's all just, for me, it's making a ton of sense. One of the biggest questions I had right from the beginning is how would the five not be having a greater say in what goes on. And I liked that that wasn't an immediate question that we answered. And I liked that in a lot of ways, they're just a bunch of kids who are saying, okay, you know, if you tell us to do it, we do it. But as this has gone on, they're saying, no, we need to be okay with all of this. And and Hope is our sort of pointed representative. My issue with Hope is that a lot of her insertion and mutant storylines feels forced. I don't really feel that connection with her. I, I think that, you know, there is an absolute problem with that men are the ones who created this progressive powerful woman who carries a giant gun. When it comes to this, I'm still Team Celine because I just don't really think that Hope belongs on the council any more than Celine does. And that's my own issues with the characters probably coming through. As somebody who has come into comics more recently in his life, I don't know a lot about Hope. I actually, this was the first time I learned that Hope also has power barring abilities. I thought Hope's mutant power was only to enhance mutants uh, around her, I did not actually know that she could borrow as well. I am leaning a little more towards Celine, not because I don't think Hope doesn't have an important point to make about things, but more importantly, I do think the magical threat outweighs the five needing representation because whether you have representation or not on the council, the five is still going to do what A, what they want to do, and B, speak with the council anyway. Whether or not Hope was there to mediate on their behalf to save the extra 10 minutes doesn't fully make a difference in my eyes versus somebody like Celine who offers a strategic defense and knowledge that with the removal of Apocalypse, they no longer have. 100%. I don't want to choose between both of them. I think it should just be both. 
Exodus should have stepped down. He should have stepped down because he Absolutely. is like obsessed with yes. hope. Yes. I love him, but I do think that you're right. He should have stepped down for her. I don't actually understand him being on the council if it means she is on the council. She represents what he wants, what he desires. Since the Krakoan era, I actually do enjoy hope more. It was a pivot away from the gun and this more sense of community. It felt so natural to her and, and what she's supposed to mean for mutantdom. It's totally fair for anybody to feel how they feel about Hope. She is a divisive character. You know, we just hope that people sort of avoid any troubling or problematic things. But that's certainly not what happened here. I'm kind of shocked that we have a kaiju situation again. It's one of those things where like, you know, Trial of Magneto did not get the warm embrace from fandom. The kaiju here being so quickly representative and kind of bringing that back to mind so quickly is part of this current set of X writers sort of decision to stay the course a little bit more than we've seen in the past that right now we're just gonna do big monsters and that's that's just what we're doing even if you kind of don't care for it we're doing kaiju and I think it's a really smart way to continue evolving the current X-Men era when you have too many old ties still binding you back you never really let go and sometimes you just gotta cut the strings Pinocchio well and I think the idea of like okay I'm attacking the island. Something is attacking the island. Everybody is now in trouble and has to figure it out. That's important for this era because it doesn't necessarily carry the same weight when a threat is individualized, even to somebody like Professor X, which we've seen before. But the island is in trouble. The nation must now band together. Feels like a really important plot beat in Krakoan times. And there's only really so many ways you can do that. And we've seen plenty of other ones too. You know, people do missile strikes people throw robots down there's lots of options this makes sense as an idea of like this is an island out in the middle of nowhere there's lots of space to produce something big and it has to now attack the whole island Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to me in which it makes perfect sense and it doesn't feel like a tired or recycled plot beat it seems like a pretty direct way to attack the mutants all at once which is clearly the goal i agree with all of that i didn't really get why it was the external gate has it done this before like did was it a kaiju before it was a gate i don't know it was external bones right so when that happened and they were like she's made the external gate into a kaiju i was like is that something we knew could happen well, we know that Celine can transfix matter from one form to another, and she can take it from organic to inorganic and inorganic to organic. So I think that's an extension of Celine being a uh, Clarimazon more than, and actually from yes. an offensive <laughs> Amazon-like area. So Absolutely. like a legitimate, she's a Scaramazon is what she is. Personally, I didn't think the writing explained itself that well. So Celine is an external herself, is she not? Yeah. So she has some kind of tie to the this gate you know it may not be her bones but she she is like a one cousin of them. and she is and the fact that she was so easily able to create this and hand wave it and leave and make this point to the mutants i think that it really speaks to the heart of why she's so important mm-hmm. i like that she was working with the resonance of the bones of a mutant circuit she'd been a part of for thousands of years and and therefore that whole thing was a lot easier to make happen i guess i'm surprised by the era of kaijus because it's just something that's not typical typically so X-Men-y, but it does really fit the like, we're an island in the middle of an ocean, South Pacific thing. Yeah, I'm so here for Kaiju. 
And let me ask our resident magical boy, Jonah, in the manga that is your life, how do you feel about kaiju coming into context with the X-Men? This is something that I'm all here for, and I love it, but I wonder how much of that is my brain is a coded JRPG, and I'm always just picking from the menu what my next move is. Number one, where's Kid Kaiju in all this? Number two... Kaiju's being this threat that seems a lot more present to the X-Men right now, I think it makes sense for, for a thematic point, but also in terms of their history, the X-Men are used to fighting like much larger things, you know, in, oh, they're not Kaiju, but they're in the similar distant cousin relation, you know, Sentinels were this huge threat to mutants and the X-Men, and these were these giant robots that could, in theory, you know, exude Kaiju energy, which is a weird brand new sentence I just made up. BKE, big kaiju energy. Yeah, big yes. kaiju energy. It's nice that we're getting what feels like fresh enemies for the X-Men to fight because they're no longer fighting amongst each other. So what are they supposed to fight now? I do appreciate it from that standpoint. My best guess is that the reason he was able to take this form, I don't think anybody knew about this except for Celine, because Celine herself is connected to Otherworld as well as being, you know, this mystical being that's practicing magic. I do think she understood how to convert it to that state. In terms of these enemies that the X-Men are fighting, what can maybe seem weird about it is it feels like it was so recent. It wasn't a new defeat. When we saw these kaijus over in the Trial of Magneto, that felt to me like this really looming threat but was kind of, but it was also understanding that it involved Wanda and that's already a whole different can of worms but it felt nice to see the X-Men and the mutants really challenged by something. Whereas here, not to say they couldn't do it again but it kind of felt like the exact same solution to the problem and I think that if there was a way to make this fight feel a little more distinct using the same kind of enemy it would really help differentiate itself from uh, their previous run-in with kaijus in The Trial of Magneto. That's really interesting. I mean, this is the second time a kaiju has struck the island and it was created via magic again. To me, that just proves that it hits the point home that Selene is important to this island. It's the second time. And speaking of giant monsters that are important to the island, look, I know it says horrible things about me, and I have the rest of my life to get therapy for it, but if we can just talk about the fact that Sinister is like, what if I make a bigger Sinister? And I'm just like, yes. do With it. Romulus jeans? He is just terrible and disgusting and gorgeous, and I am so here for this hyper-disgusting nightmare, and he's just sort of like, hey, don't worry, it's a genetic suit, and like he's so fucking funny there's something about the age of the Gillen sinister that is so spectacular and yet beyond that that is captured better by Gillen than anyone else it is a it's just a level of joy in the madness and that's not something you get from every bad guy I loved the moment with Nightcrawler and him mm-hmm. that was a great great moment I'm enjoying what Gillen's if you were a hero well <laughs> oh done you God. bought us time another thing that I really appreciated that freaking kaiju for is it gave us one of the greatest moments both in narration and execution of Storm and Magneto working as a circuit together. Oh my goodness. That it was so ca- 
casual oh. too. Their conversation. It was just like a this is like a flick of the wrist, not barely a flex of power. Right. Kind of love that it also felt like a weird like X Men Red tie in because of it. Mm. It also felt like I need to do the homework. I gotta look, but I feel like I can think of like a dozen places where Magneto was like, "We have no choice, Storm. We must unite our powers." And Storm's like, "Fuck, fine." I just feel like there's gotta be a bunch of places. Like <laughs> we were definitely working Ooh, together in some yeah. capacity during Planet Size because that was a that was a big meat circuit. I also want to yeah. give it up for working together really beautifully on digital page fifteen. The image of the Quiet Council all standing around. I guess I've just never realized there are so many ways to have fabulous like leg flare, and I mean that really seriously in the dumbest way. But like. No, I agree. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Sinister's cape would be kind of like wispy. And then there's Exodus needing way too much attention. Literally, he's purple. <laughs> and Destiny's costume looks like it came out of a prop shop. And then Mystique, it's just a dress, but look at it. And Kate's is a coat, but look at it. And Charles is what are obviously calf implants. I don't I don't even care. They're obviously calf implants. And then Emma, it's just, and you can see Nightcrawler's in the previous. And then, of course, there's, you know, Peter showing me some thigh just to remind me that he loves me. And I just feel like there is some really interesting iconography in the visual of this quiet council. I think that moment, too, where you see the Quiet Council together all on the astral plane just talking to each other is really the hinge point of what this book is trying to do in showing us a bunch of high-powered mutants working together, forming kind of impromptu circuits, doing the things that need to be done to take care of a nation, and then resetting and coming to have a discussion about the work that they're doing and what the path forward is. And that's going to be the constant push and pull of the Quiet Council for sure, but I would presume this book by extension, just what actually practically needs to be done to address an issue or to make a thing happen. And what do we all have to say about it in light of who we are representing on Krakoa? I just realized Storm's not in that image, but she is in the uh, selected minute. Exodus's cape is blocking her. I love the idea that she's behind Exodus because of your narration of it, Nico, because <laughs> of him needing too much attention. Are we going to talk about about the greatest like data page in the history of all comics ever the summer's protocol was hilarious this was some of the best writing i've seen in so long for scott summers i do love the cross-reference list that footnotes at the bottom is so anal retentively scott in yes. a way that like you know scott summers not because he's crazy but because it's to him a necessary element of getting it right he cycles his socks and and organizes his books and dusts them and makes sure that they're in height order. And if this book is just slightly the right height, but the color is okay, he'll find a place for it somewhere else. But he has to replace that book, clearly. It doesn't look quite right. And I don't know if that's something I project into the fact that he is a fastidious planner and has a natural relationship with undulation. But I really have to imagine that someone like Scott Summers has a spreadsheet for everything. And as a spreadsheet daddy, that's something that I just think is so respectable so like this page made me smile and the thing about him now is that like while that structure is so important to his life and really helps him move forward at this point in his life he has a sense of humor about it and can make yes. crack jokes about it and can inject like a title like you are unsuitable for command at this time please pass <laughs> command to someone who can recognize the sentinel like he gets it 
he understands who he is and it's beautiful seeing that on the page in this sort of subtle way i agree it added a really nice layer of world building for me which is what these data pages should be you know and this mm-hmm. is something so simple just gave me so much yeah it was a very it's a very funny page speaking of gave me so much i really am fascinated by alpha hope anti-magic celine i thought that was quite a plan and it was such a terrific payoff because it's so quick and then exodus dispenses with her so quickly the fact that gillen who is of a generation of writers who were taught that right to trade or get right the fuck out of here still understands how to while creating a narrative mystery that plays out over the course of multiple issues give each issue its own substance it's sort of the difference between throwing some songs on to go to the gym and curating a playlist it there really is a value to each piece as it creates a bigger story and instead of even making the whole issue the the hit this is a small part i can think of a ton of writers who would have turned the hit on celine into six issues after turning the kaiju into six issues and you know there'd be a two issue have to stop out of control super sinister in between and not that there's anything wrong with decompression but i so see the value in creating such a tightly paced book that keeps your audience moving it just probably means that the series won't ultimately run very very long because it's hard to sustain that sort of you know i'm looking at you alias rambaldi this you know so it's really (laughs) about making sure it stays this tight but toy i also think it's about making declarative statements about your intentions a lot of fans love this era for celine and we're looking forward to seeing her play a more prominent role i was never that invested in it and i do think it is really complicated to deal with her background and to make her a plausible, productive member of something like the Quiet Council. I am glad that Gillen essentially said, I don't have room for this in my story. You know, I'm cracking her neck and she's done. This doesn't mean that somebody else can't pick up Celine later, but it does really quickly say to readers who might have been saying like, oh, this is going to be Celine's book. She's going to be everywhere, which is something I think we all heard a lot. No, it's not because this is, Celine is just too complicated a character to factor in here. And while that might be disappointing to you know read in the second issue and discover i think it is a really smart way to just say this is done this was a character that was too complex for the stories that i was telling she's out and we are on to the next thing somebody else can pick up celine it just feels sad a little bit i mean i love this book and i think it was the right decision it just feels like there is potential there and we're just we're never gonna see it we do we have to come to terms with that part of the reason why people might have been so hyped to see celine here was that the last time if i'm not mistaken we saw celine was over in x core and uh, i if i remember this i'm doing correctly of what we covered we talked about how we thought celine should have been introduced earlier because she represented an interesting player in the business politics that monet and warren were dealing with that her expertise really could have helped with but she was introduced much later so we didn't get to see a lot of her in that role versus here where it seemed like she was trying to be set up for something major but that's not what this issue is about immortal x-men isn't about these larger than life villains that they're facing this book to me feels like they're 
trying to focus a lot more on the interpolitics and the power dynamic struggle that almost all of these members of the Quiet Council are trying to fight and vie for to kind of basically become Krakoan supreme in a way that I find fascinating. It's why Destiny over multiple titles is talking about their strength in numbers and why she's so gung-ho on trying to get Rogue on her side for this upcoming war. This title is going to focus a lot more on that where these ancillary conflicts of this giant gate kaiju has nothing to do with what this actual title I think is trying to talk about. It's why I think this book is from the perspective of Hope. She represents this new blood that's entering into these politics and it's up to her to understand where she's going to stand, whether it's for the five, whether it's with someone who's already there, whether it's for herself and her own you know, self-gain. I do think that a lot of this title is meant to be focusing a lot more on how all of these quiet council members deal with their responsibilities and duties and what that means for them. So while I am slightly sad that this might be where we don't see Celine for a little while, that's fine. Celine, as the Angels of Empire that she is in this energy sucker, she can kind of fit wherever she wants to fit, and if she wants to, she'll make it work. How does she come back and come to terms with what they did in a peaceful way? I don't think it's possible for that character. That's That just means that that's the path that character is on. But also, though, like, I d- defy you. I defy you to put Celine in the fucking pit. Celine is work. ancient, and she's not here for your pit. Like, you would put her in the pit, and she would just be like, hey, I'm just gonna claw my way out. No big deal. And so, also, it's not been established whether or not she has a, a pre-existing relationship with Krakoa or not. She might be just as buddy-buddy as Apocalypse was. Yeah. And Krakoa might just say no. Yeah. I, well, beyond that, if Sabretooth can insert his psyche, what do you think she can do? I never realized how much Destiny had in common with Iron Man. And by that, I mean, they both have the ability to change their mask face. And <laughs> I knew you were when... going to say that. <laughs> Destiny goes down and she's got like, oh shit, face, as opposed to when she's walking and she's got like, ugh, nascent migraine face. And when she's about to go down and she's got like, I forgot to lock the door face. I, number one, girl, you, this mask, this transformative mask is everything to me. I'm actually, I'm certainly not being insulting. I, yeah, these characters wear masks. You can do a little bit of fun with it. It's okay. It's a fucking comic book about immortal music. Calm down. I love it. I I hate to see, you know, her get, you're a ghost. You know, it, that's a bummer for her. But I also think that's what I mean by it plays into this bigger picture. But yeah, I love frowny face mask. And I love vaguely <laughs> angry face mask. I love that one panel when she's like falling into the tree is vaguely drank too much at lunch, but also had the steak. <laughs> and now it's all coming back to me now kind of face. Ooh, and I'm, I'm here for this transformation of Destiny Mask. It is just really a fascinating way to take a look at this character. Some like mutant smith who makes like malleable, movable metal made her a mask or something. I don't know. Maybe it's like a Mercury. Mercury made her a mask. See, I took it as it's in the same position the whole time because okay, it did feel like it was moving a little bit like with her, what her expression must have been. But if you really really look at it, I think he was trying as hard as possible to keep that solidity that solid 
good feeling of it as much as he could while being super reflective. And I think it just speaks to how expressive his art really is. It does. I think like depending on where the light falls on her lips and cheeks in each panel, it can give you an aspect of like emotionality that is easy to read onto as well. So it, it could just be like a matter of playing with the reflections to make it look like she's being expressive, but it's still technically all the same kind of shape. Yeah, there you go. And I mean, it can also just be one of those fun things where like in this case, it actually is changing a little bit because there's a thing going on, but technically it's not really supposed to. This is just a comic book mo- comic books moment where an artist decided like, uh, I'm going to just throw this in there. I'm going to make her face change a little bit. And is it technically supposed to do that? No, but it's fun and it's kind of funny. And I mean, I'll it, take it. You know, every once in a while, I think we should enjoy getting moments like this. Well, guys, I've had an amazing time talking Immortal X-Men with you. Does anybody have any final thoughts on Immortal X-Men number two before we wrap this immortal shindig up? Oh, I really like the way Gillen is playing with new mutant technology and like giving us different kinds of shortcuts with it. I really like the way Sinister is using the Moira save scum. And I really like the way Exodus and Hope kind of hacked the resurrection system to like use Celine for five seconds and then just killed her again. I'm really interested to see more of that specifically, that kind of like playing and hacking around with the the tools of Krakoa as we know them, breaking the rules with them. I really like the start of this relationship between Hope and Exodus. And I really believe that Exodus is going to believe that his powers, now that he knows what they are or like where his greater power comes from, is meant for Hope. He was created for Hope. I hope we see a little bit of that. I hope the next issue will be from perspective of Colossus. I just would like to see more random cameos from Dr. Nemesis in this book and any other one. I am full-time Dr. Nemesis support team, thousand percent. I think he's fantastic. So I cannot agree more. I just want to see the continued evolution of what the Quiet Council means to an evolving nation. Krakoa isn't just one thing. It's a nation that's continuing to take shape as the sort of society emerges. Mutant society was thing one the day it started, but every day since, mutant society has been something different by virtue of it still being a fledgling society coming into its own. The Quiet Council cannot simply exist by a piece of paper document that doesn't allow for the dynamic transformation of the peoples and their needs. So I hope to see, under the incredible supervision of Kieran Gillen, the Quiet Council continue to evolve and adapt to the ever-changing needs of an ever-changing Krakoa. Hello, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm your host today, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa, and we're just ready to get balkanized. And that makes me Dame Red Thread, and you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram, you know, to hang about, doing things, start a conversation. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Desler AOA. That's Desler, like in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me talking about how fucking amazing Storm is in this issue. How I'm so glad she kicked Emperor Vulcan's ass. Mommy, sorry, mommy. And I hope you survived this experience on Like Vulcan's Pride. <laughs> it was so satisfying. You're back to talk about X-Men Red number two, Man on Fire. We have Al Ewing, credit as writer. We have Stefano Caselli, credit as the artist. Federico Blay, color artist. And VCs Corey Pettit on letters, along with Tom Muller and Jay Bowen covering design. Beautiful storm, lots of Vulcan content. What'd you guys think of this action-packed second issue? 
It was so good. Oh my God, it was so good. I loved it. It's amazing. Everything from the story to the art to the colors. Everything was firing on all cylinders, I thought. I liked every X-Book this week. Kind of new, or at least it's been a long time, I feel like, since I felt that way. It was a really good banner week for the X-Books in general. Federico Blay really knocked it out of the park on this one with the colors. And I think this is also some of Stefano Caselli's best work so far. I think his art has gotten so much better since I first started paying attention to what he was doing. Yeah, for sure. On both counts. Mm -hmm. A lot of growth artistically that has been represented on the page. And Al Ewing here, doing what he always does. I'm not going to say Al Ewing hasn't gotten better because I'm sure he has, but like Al Ewing has always been like very high in my estimation. And the trick he pulls off with this retcon in this issue is a really stunning feat of continuity patching. Taking what was an editorial flub, the presence of Petra and Sway and their interactions with other people other than Vulcan in the previous X-Men book have conflicted with what we now know was an original plan to have Petra and Sway be only in Vulcan's imagination. And in just this opening scene of the book, Al Ewing pulls off his little trick of saying, well, Petra and Sway were energy constructs created by Vulcan that he doesn't know are there, which is just so seamless and perfect. And I just want to give it a little clap. Like that's, it's just amazing. That was such a perfect trick. It's like watching a gymnastics routine where they're trying to purposefully be bad at it but it takes like super duper good skill to actually pull off what they're doing and it's like you're just you're watching them tumble and you're watching them stumble so effortlessly and then they pull off that one big giant trick at the end you're like oh my god that was awesome that's (laughs) this that is this book yeah i thought it was very clever and I like that they took great care to fix what was a mistake in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I'd always read that they were intended to be initially, you know, just in Vulcan's head. But obviously there were some flubs along the way. Masterful. Yeah, really impressive work. And I love that it does not ignore any of the previous stuff we've seen on the page, nor does it dismiss any of it. It just works it all together into something that pushes this story along and makes it even more interesting. This kind of reminds me of when... Cypher, Alyssa Taggart, was revealed to have been a character and that explained some of like Blindfold's old talking to herself. It was perfect. It just seemed like, oh, wow, has this been the plan all along? Yeah, I thought that was all really cool. Vulcan is more interesting to me than he's ever been, really. He's falling a lot more and more into calling himself the Emperor, even though he constantly tells his energy constructs not to call him the thing that he has them call him. It's getting really heated up for him, so to speak. He's a really dangerous and a really powerful element. I love that we're seeing these aliens worked back in because I felt like it had been just forgotten that Vulcan had been like pieced back together after being taken apart by these extra-dimensional beings. And I'm really excited to see what that story continues to go oh god yes absolutely i love seeing how fractured he is and how he is he's 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 not stable he's like not at all stable and i like that they kept that element of him because that was honestly what his character was built into it's this his storyline and they're keeping true to it so I'm, I'm really interested to see kind of where they go with this and how they're going to play this character because honestly 
he's a villain. He is a villain. And the thing that created him as a villain is his trauma with Xavier. And it is really crazy that Scott decided to bring Xavier in for this. Like Xavier is one of those guys who absolutely has always been okay with just reaching into people's heads with or without the permission. He's an incredibly invasive person in general. And I know he's important to Scott, but Scott has to understand how like horrific it must be for him to be around Vulcan. I mean, Scott of all people knows that. And for Xavier to just come in here and say like, oh, this is going to be fine. I will just reach in and, you know, kind of fix this problem it, like Vulcan screaming this is a violation get out of my mind like his absolute hatred and anger and fear in that moment is really palpable and I can't help but feel like Vulcan really could have been on this path of healing or at least you know was seeming to be as the alien said but Xavier just one last time thinking he can monkey around in somebody's mind and it goes the same way it always does I love that we saw just after Xavier is revealed to be there this data page with Xavier notes and that final line where he says that I have total confidence that this will succeed. We knew there was going to be some like immediate fallout. Didn't know it was going to be like nuclear explosion on the moon fallout, but yeah. <laughs> you could see that that was going to happen. I mean, Xavier has gotten so much bolder about just being arrogant directly in people's faces and he's not even trying to hide it. And this is again why I dislike Cyclops so damn much. He lets Xavier get away with some heinous shit right in front of his face with his own family. And it's kind of disgusting that he lets him do that. And he, of all people, should know how much Vulcan does not want to be around Xavier. And yet they just walk right in and reach right in. And like, what did they think was going to happen? Honestly. Yeah, it does sometimes feel like Scott, who is a character I love very much, is a person who, when he has forgiven something, Somebody kind of just assumes that everybody should, and that's not okay. We have to contrast that with Hellions, with the beginning of Hellions, where Scott went to bat for Havoc, and he's not going to bat for, for Vulcan. And that yeah. speaks to their relationship. And honestly, like, even in Hellions, like, I didn't read that scene as him going to bat. I read that scene very much as him, like, being reluctant to, and, like, I mean, obviously he ultimately did, right? He did that thing for him. But there is this tension that exists between all the Summers brothers, and it's there all constantly between Havoc and Scott and it's there so much more with Gabriel and who Scott has to feel so much guilt for which is again why I'm like why would you ever bring Xavier to this bring Emma bring anybody you trust yeah bring any of the telepaths that you are intimate with in your life I also kind of like how the explosion of the summer house could possibly explain why the X-Men don't care that the moon blew up. <laughs> well, here's the thing. This issue consistently notes that he's not welcome at the summer house, Gabriel, yeah. and so, which implies it's still there. So I guess like Maybe Rick, Rick Rick is just not happening. We're just ignoring <laughs> that and I'm cool with it. What do you guys think of Brand in this issue? talk about arrogance oh my god she was so very perfectly herself to say the I least i thought she was herself extremely herself but she's also beast because beast is very much like her they really do deserve each other and <laughs> brand underestimates storm here because of course she does she's always so concerned with a big picture that she forgets that people have little pictures and she absolutely cannot understand petty concerns and that is always going to be her downfall because people care about things other than some greater good galactic plan that she's got cooked up in her mind that places her at the very top of a hierarchy and right. <laughs> I cannot believe that she really thought that she could puppet around Storm the way that she has been used to puppeting around other people and I'm glad to see her about to have to change her way of thinking if she wants to continue being on the same playing field with Roro. I love how this issue 
shows that yes she's cunning and she's manipulative and she's a mastermind but she can miss the small pieces the idea that she thought x-men and Araco would be a good idea to just pose upon the Araki, these heroes these champions when they've been fighting for themselves this whole time when storm knows how it needs to be done to be able to not assist because you don't assist you know come together to defeat a foe yeah kind of i mean they work with the iraqi the brotherhood do they learn their culture and their methods and they try to work within a framework that already exists at you know at the pleasure of the iraqi not not dominating them for their own good like brand clearly intends like i mean her entire attitude towards this is extremely colonialist down to every last detail she does not care what the iraqi i think of her she just cares that somebody is there to police them and that is made explicit and manifold isn't having any of it i love it when characters like brand just you know get shot on by characters who know what they're up to and they're like i'm not doing any of this and you're not gonna be able to gaslight me anymore so to call Rand on, on her shit was, was really good to see. And it was funny when he said, I'll just, you know, I'll be an Avenger or something. That was yeah, funny. That's, that's always there for me. I can just go be an Avenger if I'm not doing this. You know, I got yeah. things going on. Oh, mm-hmm. I my jaw just hit the floor. I was like, oh, man. Like, this man has such a clear conscience, such a big picture, a peaceful vision for what he wants the world to be. And he stands on his principles. He right. is not afraid to. And I love the fact that he's like, no, really, what happened? Because I know you're lying. And for her to be so bold-faced about it, he's like, you know, nope, 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 I'm out. I will not help you further whatever your machinations are because I know that you're lying about something that is overall a little thing, which means you're very willing to hide bigger things. Yeah, and he's also a man of Aboriginal Australian descent. So, like, I can imagine that for him, this is just, like, recognizing that same historical evil that, that he's felt in his community because... That's obviously not going to be something he's going to miss. I don't know why Cable and uh, Frenzy are going along with Brand. I mean, I think there's something else at play, especially with Cable. Yeah, with Cable for sure. I think he's being controlled by that techno-organic virus in some way. No, but I think that that Cable is very suspicious of Brand, and I don't see why. He's just throwing along like... I think he and Frenzy have probably been talking a bit and are probably on the same mind of if we leave, they go completely unchecked. If we stay, we can maybe try and route things or give other people time to get in here. So I think there there is a, a stop instead of just letting them do as they will completely unchecked with low morals and no compass. My only one issue with this whole book was that Frenzy stayed with the team. I know a lot of people out there, you know, are wondering what the, her reasons are and maybe there's something more. I mean, I've heard a lot of good theories about why she could be staying with the team. Even though she's always been a, you know, quote unquote villain character, she always was originally driven by her being an outcast and having such a hard life with all that abuse and then like to see her grow from you know even in the genosian era she was an ambassador too so like you know her ambassadorship in sword is kind of like an expansion of that growth with her she's a tough character who likes to fight out issues i just don't see her staying along with brand's bullshit for this x-men team and she would be the one character who i would think would see not the shit that brand is trying to pull but like how how awful and inappropriate this team looks to the Iraqi. I think she absolutely does. I think that's the only reason she stays because if she leaves, shit will go sideways so hard, so fast that they will be at each other's throats in no time. 
Now, I tend to agree with, with what you said, Raven. That, that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And Frenzy and Cable are definitely the two most, like, well put together in terms of their mental organization on this team. And also, they're just, they're both old soldiers. They know what they're doing. I trust them both a lot. So, let's talk about the progenitors. Our, the knockoff uh, Celestials? I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. If a Celestial and a Sentinel had a bad night. Ugh. Yeah, it very much looks like Celestials that are cosplaying as, like, Tron characters. <laughs> <laughs> the Infinity Gauntlet and other things. Very fun. Obviously, they have been called in by Brand as a false flag operation for her new X-Men Dominators. Uh, kind of horrifying, uh, definitely in every way. I know the progenitors show up a lot in uh, Ewing's work. I feel like the last time they showed up was maybe in The Last Annihilation or some t- sometime around then. But Brand obviously was present for that operation, so I'm imagining that contracting with Orbis Stellaris was just like, hey, I remember these goofballs. <laughs> Why don't we call them up and have them down? We can take care of them. What did you all think of the scene of them menacing the Iraqi people and the Iraqi people just being like, fuck you, get out of here. <laughs> oh, oh my God, I lived for it. Holy crap, that was epic. Because like like they said, they're all artisans. They're just like, they're potters and smiths and crafters and, and painters. And they are, they're not these uber powered, you know, creatures like the White Sword or, or Bay or in Apocalypse and Genesis, but they still will throw down. They remind me of like the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian civilians who are like, you, you got a tank? Fine, whatever. We'll tow it with our tractor. We will do whatever we got to do. Like, ah, I loved it. I lived for it. Oh, love. It is a beautiful portrait of people in resistance. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and, and these are people that have literally fought and died for millennia. They finally have like a peaceful, non-warring life. Of course, they're going to defend it because that's what they've been fighting for. Yeah, they still remember the war. Millions of years. Yeah, so I thought it was great that even with their relatively limited power sets, they still went all out on defending their homes. Yeah, I love that every single Iraqi is willing to throw down at any moment. It's really great. Like they are so much more nuanced than just like, I don't Fight know, all like, the time, right? Yeah. They're not just like Marvel Klingons. They have so much more going on, although the Klingons have a lot more going on, but that's yeah. another podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I just love that every single one of them is like, I don't care. I will fight till my last dying breath because this is ours. We fought really hard for this and we're not going to give it up to literally anything. Galactus could come and these guys are going to be throwing like octahedrons made of light. And <laughs> I, yes. I do love the complexity that Ewing is giving the Arakai people that, you know, even in a group of people who who will fight for what they have to and for thousands of years just had to like literally fight to survive they still got like a commune of artists and poets it's good to see that you know Ewing's showing these people being a full rich people and not just like warriors yeah and of course Brand uses this opportunity with the progenitors to have them suck out Cable's load oh that was so wrong that was oh and followed yeah. by an immediate like Wolverine and Days of Future Past just for fun <laughs> it is very funny to me it's very crazy to me that the X-Men just die all the time now I'm still getting used to it like I love right. that like like if they died with this much frequency I'm like how did they even last this long like I know right. they <laughs> until they knew they could die it's like they're just throwing away their lives <laughs> they're just not being as strategic anymore and it's like <sighs> 
I don't know if I like that. Yeah, they're like the Eternals before these Eternals run. <laughs> yeah, they're like Icarus before he learned how to dodge. Or maybe I don't think he has learned yet, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually when Cable talks about his telekinetic powers, you know, overriding his TO, he usually talks about how keeping the virus in check keeps his telekinesis, you know, occupied. So, like this, I kind of like how it kind of flipped the switch and it was like, you know, having to hold on to the TK virus keeps his telekinesis under control and i was like wow that's an interesting kind of flip the x-men are just like kind of frazzled by all this and they see one of their own die and then they see an iraqi die and then they just start terrorizing the iraqi because they brought the insane emperor with but then the most badass people on the planet show up the brotherhood of mutants wait wait, wait. even before that the fact that that artisan stood up to vulcan he's like look me in my eye it's like oh shit like they had fear of no one and nothing i love it they're just literally they do not respect anybody who has not been through the trauma of the prisons that they went through they're like listen you might have your own trauma and that's cool and you can be here but like if you want to come in and tell us what to do and how to run this planet you got another thing coming buddy and i and i love the difference the the huge difference between you know the x-men just arriving on the scene and you know when the brotherhood arrives storms like people of the marylands the brotherhood of araco have heard the challenge and we consider it a challenge to all may we answer like the fact that she asks the people hey can we step mm-hmm. in and help mm-hmm. oh my god do you require assistance like this, not, not, this is how you ally this is how you do it yes yeah. and i gotta say magneto just looks incredible floating in in his old super villain clothes yes. love it and that love the lore of the fisher king too yeah uh, you know like you know the unarmed king who is the with her who ruled at midnight like ooh, i would need to know so much more so he's definitely on the right. the night council right <gasps> Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's got to be on the night council. Yeah. I honestly want to know more backstory because, I mean, this is a person who has <laughs> zero mutant abilities. He is human by, by all standards. And yet they still have such respect for this man and such reverence for what he's done, even oh. without any powers whatsoever. I'm like, oh, this is, I need to know more. There needs to be more. But also, I want to say, I still vehemently, if not more, or hate Storm's costume. Hmm. Okay. Like the damn hip thing, the the hip gap is sliding lower and lower and lower. Oh. And I am really not happy with this return to hypersexualization of a black woman. Fair, fair. Yeah. How did you feel about Bobby back in the new X-Men jackets? His nice little puffy outfit. So we get through the battle and basically the artists do some distraction for magneto he snaps his fingers and does some cool magneto shit like usual but then we get probably my favorite part of the issue the confrontation between storm and vulcan which is really more like a squad match can we just say how gorgeous the colors are like the contrast between the reds and and the whites and the blues oh and the designs the designs of the iraqi people oh my goodness gracious those the tones the colors the constructs that they made it was all so gorgeous and so amazing they overwhelmed the enemy with beauty oh i could die yeah absolutely wonderful like all the musicians raise your cacophonies like i love that they used art to defeat them and like in a realistic way not in like a hold hands and sing songs kind of way like i mean they did hold hands and sing songs but it was powerful it was beautiful and it worked i agree the colors are phenomenal i love magneto's little pink eyes i love the contrast of the blue of the ice and the the lightning 
versus Vulcan's like red and orange flames. Just the crackle. It's it's extremely dynamic. It looks like they're shrouded in darkness even when there's fire all around. It's phenomenal. And the art on Aurora and Vulcan's face really conveys like the challenge of everything that's going on here. Yeah. This is a new use of powers as well. I've never seen her do anything like this. I like this comic is really exploring with Magneto, with Storm, and with Vulcan, like the limits of being an Omega-level mutant. Absolutely. Yeah, especially with, with the fight between Storm and Vulcan. In the, since there's no limit to what they can do like physically with their powers, it's always going to end up who, who has more control and who, who wants to win more. Well, that's the problem, though. Vulcan wants to win. Storm knows she's going to. Yeah, She truly does have the superior fighting spirit. Yeah, she does. She's always had strong will described as part of her character and, and almost even like out of a need to be able to control her abilities in the first place. But of course, Storm is going to outwill Vulcan, of course. How do you all feel about the brand's conclusion that she thought she was getting the Queen of Wakanda and instead she got the Queen of the Morlocks? I think that's really interesting because I mean, like metafictionally, it's also about like the difference in the way that Storm has been written in those eras that she, you know, was in the Claremont era during when she was uh, Queen of the Morlocks and then in the later 2000s era when she became the Queen of Wakanda and married T'Challa. There's been a distinct difference in her characterization, but also in like the level of power and respect that she's commanded. What, what do you all think about that comparison here in the last bit? Oh, that was so incredibly apt and I loved it because when she was Queen of the Morlocks, she, she had power because she earned that power and she earned that respect. And there was no trying to soften her edges there was only trying to create a more functional and and vibrant community versus when she became the queen of wakanda there was a lot of edge softening there was a lot of minimizing her roles t'challa treated her as if she was just a political marriage and after that she was just a tool that he would use when he needed her and people kind of went along with that and it was honestly quite frankly disgusting the way he treated her and the way she was allowed to be treated so i i love the fact that brand thought that she was going to get that soft malleable manipulatable you know storm from that era and instead she got the fierce strong and very powerful and capable woman who wants to lead a community yeah the leading a community part is so important here i think because i mean wakanda is of course a community but storm is in many ways like a goddess or a figurehead or an icon to them, you know, somebody to look to and somebody that whose image can be changed and tarnished depending on events. But like she became the queen of the Morlocks in the same way she became the queen of Mars, you know, by playing by their rules and fighting their fights. And I think that is a really interesting and apt comparison. It kind of shows how Brand is losing touch with the actual facts that she would think that she would have run into the queen of Wakanda instead of the queen of Morlocks because this is the story that we've seen growing right under her nose and sword even you know once storm left marauders this is the personality that storm has been exuding so like for brand to expect that from aurora means that she's not paying attention at yeah. and dangerously underestimating somebody that i can i cannot imagine anybody in the marvel universe actually still underestimates well she's on some colonizer shit so yeah and this page also speaks to what you said before steven about how brand is so far in the big picture that she forgets like 
the lives of people around her. Right. And she's playing all sides because, I mean, she says she's like going for working with Orcus, but at the same time, she's waiting for them to play their hand so she can play hers and then come out on top above Orcus and above the mutants. Right. And that probably she's so, she's missing the forest for the trees here. Yeah. Brand is somebody who wants to protect everything around her. And by protection, she means be in charge of it. She thinks exactly. she's the best person yeah. to do that. And she thinks that nobody else can be trusted with anything because she's a control freak and she just yeah she needs domination because that's the only way to guarantee safety i think with her mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. and i did like how the data page did reveal that like brand at least is cognizant enough that she realizes that her x-men team is going to sort of put strain on the relationship between krakoa and but i think the- that's the whole point yeah. it's it's not like she didn't realize it i mean she straight up admits to yeah. her false flag operation and the progenitors and whatnot brand is just using her X-Men Red team to destabilize relationships mm-hmm. so workers can take over and then when then she can take over. So like it's completely on purpose that this team is dysfunctional. It's Killmonger tactics. Hit it where it hurts the most. That's basically what she's doing right now. She's doing those exact same techniques, those exact same ploys. So like, yeah, she that's what she's planning on doing or at least trying to. It's very CIA of her. <laughs> she also mentions making proper use of Mars. She mentions a little bit about Mars being the diplomatic ring and then else is Araco, and that seems to be like the vast majority of the planet to me but like what is the proper use of Mars to her? Is it just a, a way station for Sol system dominance whether it's by humans mutants, machines, or all of them against intergalactic threats? What is she so concerned about? Like I feel like it must be just the phalanx if we go on her weird tests on cable and her extreme need to dominate the system but like if she doesn't really have any true alliance to any faction there and if she sees it all as the same life, then why is she weakening it by destabilizing such important factions like Krakoa or like attending to get the drop on Orcas? It seems like her plan is just to be at the top of the local area, and I'm trying to figure out what the end game here is for her. Because we've seen bits and pieces of who Brand, I mean, we already knew who Brand was, but who Brand is in this era. Barring the missteps that she's made, that she admits that she made in this issue, she's always been a character who's got some in game and I can't wait to see what that is because we know she doesn't care about Orcus any more than she cares about Koa. She just wants to play both sides against each other. And That's going to get really crazy when she is pitting her big gun Vulcan against the deadly boogeyman of Araco. Who's this guy Judas from Orcus? Is this a guy from Giant Size Thunderbird, maybe? I don't hmm. know. He did specifically say from one Judas to another, so I think you are probably right. Keep going back to the panel where Storm is choking Vulcan out. The color play on that is so gorgeous. <laughs> I was like, tell like, me how you find this scene, Raven. <laughs> it makes me unreasonable, to say the least. But the colors and the line work on it is so gorgeous. Like, the, the background of those orange and yellow tones of Vulcan's fire, but just him himself being absolutely overshadowed by Storm's beautiful blue essence. Just, <laughs> it's so hot. I love it. <laughs> Storm wearing the lightning never gets old for me. It's just so cool that she's, like, wearing this rad-ass, like, fucking leather jacket with the spikes and just this, the storm crackling around her as she's like, shut up, little man. It's really nice. Yeah, and I love the line where she says, that you're just like a little spark inside this great big storm. That That's me. 
So there's no comparison. Like the child is the hurricane. That night feels very Claremont for some reason. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. That's absolutely Claremont. I do want to point out that no knives were used in the making of this fight. Good. good. <laughs> yeah. It's for nice one. to break from Storm only being a knife wielder. Oh, well, I guess you could put it in her jacket pocket because I was like, there's no other place to put that knife. Hey, Storm has big knife energy, so. <laughs> oh wait, no, there's actually probably a boot knife. I just looked at her freaking shoe level. Yeah, I see it in that last panel. Yeah. Can we talk about the last panel on the tablet? Vulcan is being sent to assassinate Tarn the Ungaring. That's gonna go so bad for him. I think it is gonna go extremely bad for Vulcan. I really can't see this working out for Vulcan at all. Tarn is looking extremely devilish and sexual in this nice little Tinder oh. picture he's got. <laughs> His OK Cupid profile picture. Vulcan can be as mad as he wants and he can be as powerful and <laughs> imperial as he wants, but I like cannot at all see this being a fun time for him. They're sending this boy to just be absolutely murdered. He's gonna get uppercutted to the taint so hard. I'm sure that whatever happens to Vulcan in this battle, it is going to trigger whatever is going on with him. The twisted, broken version of himself that's just beneath the surface. If we're not already seeing that as it is anyway. I cannot imagine an encounter with Tarn is going to be any good for his mental health. No. Obviously you can't underestimate Tarn, the sinister <laughs> of the Horaki. It's like so much scarier. Even. It's, no, it's especially because next issue is called the Vile, so it's going to be Vulcan against Tarn and the Locust Vile. Ooh, Ooh, exciting. I mean, the Hedders didn't stand a chance against the Locust Vile. I'm not sure if Vulcan will be able to. They should really send the entire X-Men team against just Tarn because this is not going to be fun. But yeah. I'm very excited to see what happens. Unfortunately, the preview under the Vile as the title also seems to imply Tarn fucking with Magneto, so that's extremely stressful to see. Yeah, very, very Cronenberg picture. I don't know. Yeah, that's <laughs> some, that was some body horror right there. Ooh. Nothing's going to take the cake in my book besides like the body horror that we got when Tarn fought Storm. That was like horrifying. So messed up. And like still beautiful at the same time. And I don't think Vulcan has it in him to fucking kill, beat Tarn without his powers. The real monkey paw of this book is that I've got to see a bunch of my very, very favorite characters all together in a book for once and against Tarn. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to see Storm, (laughs) Magneto, and Beto have to go against Tarn ever again. This could be bad. No, I'm just thinking if everyone's expecting this to go so bad for provoking that Al's going to pull a fast one on us. Oh, I'm sure. I'm very excited to see what he has for us, and I'm very excited to see what this art team does with the next Tarn fight. I can't wait to see more of the Arakai lore be explored. Like, I love this culture that Ewing's building for us. I love like who they are as a culture. I need to know more about the Fisher King. How is this man being held in such high reverence? from this warrior society like i have to see vulcan take down a peg or two i mean he already got taken down a few pegs here 